Good morning, Alaska. Welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. The decision to take medications for a mental health condition is one that many people struggle with. Most of us believe that we should be able to tough it out or make lifestyle changes to improve our mental health, or we think taking medications is like using a crutch or means that we are mentally weak. The reality is that taking the proper medication for the right condition can be a game changer when it comes to improving mental health. Do you have a question about medications for depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar, or any other mental health condition? Have you taken medications for a mental health condition and would like to share your experience with that? Well, today's program is your chance to ask those questions uh, that you might have about psychiatric medications. We are devoting this hour of line one to a discussion about the uses, the risks, and the benefits of psychiatric medications. Uh, joining me to share his expertise on this topic is psychiatrist Dr. Richard Holt, who is joining us from his home in New Zealand, where it is six in the morning and is already tomorrow. Uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Holt. Thanks for getting up early and uh, calling in today. Good morning, Prentice. It's good to hear you. Uh, it's always a pleasure. We were originally going to do this uh, two weeks ago, and then I was driving into the studio and just like coughing and feeling bad, and so we pulled the plug on that last minute, and so I appreciate your flexibility and, and getting back on with us. Um, okay, I need to take a second to remind listeners how we can be reached. It's a live call-in show, so don't hesitate to call us if you have questions about medications. I know I get them in my office all the time, and I have to say I am not a doctor. But today, we have a doctor who can answer whatever questions you might have uh, if you want to know, um, well, whatever, about psychiatric meds for kids, for adults, depression, anxiety, panic, um, so please don't hesitate to give us a call. In Anchorage, our phone number is 907-550-8433. Outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free from anywhere you might be listening at 1-888-353-5752. And you can email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. you got to spell out line1, L-I-N-E. O-N-E at alaskapublic.org. So this is your chance to ask Dr. Holt, who uh, has joined us to um, share his wisdom and experience. So let's, I guess let's start off by talking about that experience and your background in, in psychiatry and maybe a little bit about your philosophy and your thoughts uh, about medications. Sure. So... Uh, as you said, Prentice, I'm currently in New Zealand, and, and I work here in community mental health of, on an inpatient in, and in the community. Uh, I also have, uh, I work in Alaska part-time uh, uh, when I'm not working here and will be returning in the near future uh, as part of the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium as their uh, medical director for behavioral health services. And that's, uh, is that search? Is that... That's search, yes. So that would be most people know that as search. And I think, in my way of background, I've been uh, so my, I'm a medical doctor. So my training is foundationally medical, and my special training was in uh, general psychiatry. And I also did a research training uh, that involved uh, brain stimulation, functional neuroimaging, and uh, clinical research. 
All right. Um, so as far as like, you're uh, you're doing double duty, huh? You're working in Z- New Zealand, and I guess obviously you're not flying here, so you're doing telehealth or or working part time at Search. Yeah, um, I, I'd work two days a week at Search, uh, uh, some clinical, uh, some administrative, and really, you know, I think it's one of the flow on effects of of the pandemic is that we've become a lot more far-reaching in our use of, of telehealth and, and mine may be among the most far-reaching. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, that's quite a ways. All right. So we're talking about psychiatric meds today. And I personally have always sort of been a kind of let's try some other things first sort of therapist. When people say, what do you think about meds? I ask people, do you want them? Have you tried them before? Um, What efforts have you done behaviorally uh, with lifestyle changes, um, diet, exercise, that sort of stuff? What's kind of your philosophy? I know like for a while it, it seemed like everybody was taking Prozac, everybody was taking Xanax, just like go to the doctor, get your little pill bottle. And, uh, you know, whenever anything came up, you just pop a pill. But, um, what's your sort of general philosophy and are they overused, underused, you know, standalone intervention or yeah, give us just kind of like your, I don't know, broad stroke sort of thoughts about medications and their uses. Sure. Um, I certainly find myself in a similar position in my office when I'm asking, uh, when people are inquiring about starting a medication, I really do try to ask what else is going on in their lives. And sometimes that involves setting aside the discussion about medications and really getting a sense of the context that we're, we're using them in. And, and that goes to the underlying notion that one of the things we may not have done as good a job as we could have in psychiatry is we've leaned heavily on this idea that, that you know, people with uh, suffering from depression, anxiety, and other symptoms have a chemical imbalance, and then that we have the chemical that can somehow undo that balance. And it's, it's, it's quite a bit more complicated than that. And, you know, any of these things are taking place, certainly, it's really important uh, to get the correct medication, but it's, it's almost never the entirety of the treatment. Um, some of the times I use the analogy that, that, you know, medications are what gets you onto the field with the proper equipment, but you still have to play the game of life. You still have to kind of figure out kind of what are the things that are feeding into your, uh, your depression? What are the things that are sustaining your anxiety? You know, what are the things that, uh, that we can address in your, you know, more holistically that the medications are supporting. Um, and that goes to making recovery goals. What would you like to be different in your life? Um, you know, medications, you know, don't get you out of an abusive situation. So talking about, you know, kind of looking for supports for, okay, I'm, I'm in an unhealthy relationship. How do I, how do I kind of find safety in that? Um, and so really important to understand that again, medications, um, you know, are part of a much bigger picture. Yeah. And, um, I think about people who are experiencing, uh, massive panic attacks or can't leave the house, um, due to severe anxiety or can't get out of bed from this like intense depression, suicidal. I mean, are there times when medications are called for like right from the start, you say, oh, like this clearly needs medication? Absolutely. I mean, uh, 
I think that saying that, you know, I think going back to the analogy, you wouldn't someone out, send someone out into a kind of football game with no helmet and no pads. And, and in many ways, you know, that's what the medications are. They, especially people with severe illness, sometimes they need, uh, you know, what the medications can do to provide some relief uh, so that they can begin to address their symptoms. So absolutely, you know, and, and you know, you touched on something there that, you know, the people who experience those symptoms, they are experiencing things that are states of anxiety. So there may be actual things going on. It's a stressful time to live. So just looking at the news can stress you out. Right. And so those are kind of those are kind of states of anxiety that we put ourselves in. But there's also this underlying trade anxiety. Just we're all wired differently, and some people are, um, you know, ex- more exquisitely sensitive to those those things. And and you know, learning to kind of change the models through which they view the world slowly over time so that those biases towards kind of anxiety that are a little more hardwired can be addressed takes time and again is usually best undertaken with a combination of the right medication which can take a frustratingly long time to find uh, and some sort of therapy or structural change in their life yeah that's uh, obviously something we really want to get into is like the it's not an exact science it doesn't seem to be like what is the right medication um and and matching it up with the right diagnosis is like critically important you were talking a little bit about that before we came on the air so we will get um more into that in a moment but we do have a uh, a caller so we'll we'll go ahead and go to patty to get us started off with calls patty you're on line one with dr holt go ahead I do. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was wondering if there's any type of medication or any kind of help that treats with a person um, that displays all of the symptoms for OCPD, the personality disorder. Um, lots of um, hoarding, um, perfectionism, um, can't let anything go. Um, lots of anxiety. Um, but also, too, um, will not go to get help. All right, that's a that's a tough one when they won't go to get uh, get assistance. But Dr. Holt, can you explain what uh, what OCPD is and answer? Give some information on is there medication for that? So, uh, Patty, this is an excellent question, and it really highlights, you, you brought up both the OCPD and OCD, and I think this is one of those places where finding some sort of diagnostic certainty is especially important, because OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, is something that really can only be treated if you're including some form of uh, pharmacotherapy. There's, there's something called response prevention. It's the psychotherapy for it, but there's also pharmacotherapy. Um, it's also one of the ones we know more about the biology of. So we know that it not only involves kind of the, the cortical areas of our brains that help us kind of set up models and make decisions, but it involves a lot of the motor areas and subcortical areas that drive those obsessional rituals. Um, and so that, that crosstalk between these really intrusive unwanted repetitive thoughts and then the rituals that we need to perform in order to kind of make them uh, better and then they those don't work and so we get caught in this kind of loop that's kind of OCD but what you're talking about is OCPD and sometimes it's really hard to tell a difference you know hoarding behaviors um, and and kind of some of those really uh, you know kind of really damaging behaviors 
may also be part of, uh, you know, hoarding disorder, which is its own kind of got its own category and probably is more biologically related to something like OCD. OCPD or the personality disorder tends to be characterized by someone who's really especially fastidious. So it's almost that, you know, kind of type A, super type A personality where everything has to be just so and, and they experience, but but for them, there's a great pleasure in setting things right. So ordering things just so for someone with kind of the obsessive compulsive personality type is is consistent with kind of who they say they are. Whereas these people with these kind of almost involuntary intrusive thoughts of I need to hoard and stack these papers, they'll often invent models kind of in retrospect to why they need to have kind of 30 years of news, newspapers stacked up on their living room sofa. But in the end, it kind of feels like an alien behavior that just really drives them. And so, you know, I, I think this is one of those where uh, probably getting uh, a, a thorough diagnostic evaluation looking at medications, but this is one of those when those obsessive behaviors often require among the most intensive psychotherapy that is on offer. Um, you know, sometimes that can be residential settings. So sometimes that even means brief inpatient stay to kind of take a closer look at what's really going on. Yeah, Patty, um, that's, a, that's a good uh, distinction between the personality disorder and just that obsessive compulsive sort of hoarding behavior. And Patty, if you go into our archives, um, I believe I did two shows on hoarding with a, an international expert on hoarding behavior, and um, those can be found in our archives. If you just go to Alaska Public Media and click on line one, um, you can, even if you type in the search box hoarding, um, those two shows will come up, and there's two hours of information with somebody who knows a lot about hoarding and that obsessive behavior. So that might be a really good resource for you, Patty. And I, I appreciate the call and hope that information was helpful. All right. Um, so let's talk about the different categories of medications. Uh, let's get a little bit uh, into some of the, um, what types of medications are there and um, yeah, for different for anxiety and depression, and and what do they work on? How do they work in the brain? And we categorize medications in a variety of different ways. So sometimes we categorize them by what they're intended to treat. Uh, so, for example, we we call certain agents antipsychotic agents, and then we have you know ones that we use to treat depression and anxiety, antidepressants, of course. We so we have those broad labeling, but then we we even talk about within those uh, different. Uh, broad categories, for example, among the antipsychotic medications, we talk about, you know, first generation and atypicals, which have different kind of properties in the brain. Within the antidepressant category, we have ones that work on a variety of neurotransmitter systems, including serotonin, uh, norepinephrine, uh, and dopamine. So the extent to which they do that and how they do that either alone in combination is sometimes how we categorize them. And some medications just kind of hang out on their own. I, the one I think of offhand is lithium, which has been used in the treatment of mood disorders and bipolar in particular uh, for the better part of a century, yeah. kind of has its own category within mood stabilizers. And we often cross-purpose uh, medications that started in other other fields. For example, some of the things we use in, in bipolar started as anticonvulsant medications used in epilepsy and seizure disorders. So again, there's just a lot of heterogeneity, which means we have a lot of different options and also that it can be quite confusing to sort them out. Yeah, it's uh, it seems like it's really complex. So if we're taking, we're talking, let's start with uh, anxiety medications. Well, actually, I want to 
ask a question. Is there are there certain conditions that medications are indicated for just sort of automatically? Um, I think of schizophrenia, but are there other ones where treatment is really not going to be effective unless there is some sort of medication on board? Well, you mentioned schizophrenia, and that is probably the the, the kind of the flagship entity that would, would qualify for that. And, and that goes back to the fact that there are probably some, some trait abnormalities or some things that really need to be addressed with medication in order for to soften um, the the cognition uh, that holds in place the phenomenology of schizophrenia, which is characterized by fixed false beliefs uh, systems uh, called delusions, and then um, sort of sensory experiences that aren't experienced by anyone else, aren't related to any external uh, stimulus, and and those are hallucinations. And so and the third part of that is that those are often accompanied by increasing disorganization, disorganization of thought. So the ability to kind of coherently main a train, maintain a train of thought is disrupted in that disorder. And it is unlikely to you know, respond to anything other than a medication that can addru- address the underlying kind of information flows that are kind of out of balance, you know, kind of in that individual. Okay, so schizophrenia would be one. And what would, are there any other... That, that medications should be on board before any other so effective treatment. Yeah. I certainly think kind of when talking about kind of that pure OCD often requires, you know, uh, a medication in order for the people to get any benefit from the response prevention kind of techniques that are used psychotherapeutically for it. I think of, you know, severity actually makes a difference, you know, kind okay. of, you know, mild depression often responds best to psychotherapy, but very severe depression that, you know, the kind that people kind of involute completely, they can become catatonic, they stop eating, they, you know, have intense suicidal thoughts, those require medication, uh, those, those are very severe. And the same thing with in the other spectrum with bipolar mania, when someone, you know, kind of hasn't slept for several days, their thoughts are racing um, uh, and they're engaging in incredibly high-risk behaviors that are a real rupture from the normal behavioral kind of pattern, and their thinking is also disrupted. Similarly, that that person, you know, w- would would not respond or not even probably be open to psychotherapy without kind of medications to kind of slow those thoughts down and to kind of uh, you know quell the acute mania. So those are those are some obvious ones: severe depression, acute mania, severe OCD, uh, and schizophrenia, as we mentioned at the beginning. All right. It sounds like it's really important to look at the impact that these conditions are having on daily functioning. And if if someone is really debilitated and not able to get to work, to have relationships, to um, get out of bed, or, or or they're frozen with fear and panic, like it seems like if it's to that level, then medications are are indicated as a, as a starting point. Yeah, I think uh, more broadly speaking, the severity of the illness will often dictate the, the number of resources that need to be brought to bear. So yes, medications are one of them, but often where in the treatment continuum, someone needs to begin their journey. If they're that sick, they often do need to be in hospital or in some sort of intensive program. You know, So the medications right. are part of a broader resource allocation to kind of address the severity of the illness. Um, All right. Um, we have a, a caller, but we're also at our 20-minute break, so I think we're going to go ahead and take our break, and then if, uh, if we can have Amelia hold on, we will get uh, to her call right after this short break. 
Um, if you're just joining us today, we are discussing psychiatric medications with psychiatrist Dr. Richard Holt. If you have a question for Dr. Holt, you can reach us in Anchorage at five five or nine zero seven five five zero eight four three three. You can call us toll free at one eight 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 three five three five seven five two. And the last way to reach us is to email your questions to line one at Alaska Public. Org. After a short break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Richard Holt. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the greatest honors for a public media station is delivering on its promise to provide quality programming and news you can trust to the communities it serves. What you hear on air is the result of a dedicated team working together to bring you the best. It's a privilege to be a part of your day. Thank you for listening, for your feedback, and for your support. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in, my guest is psychiatrist Dr. Richard Holt. Today we are discussing the types, uses, benefits, and risks of psychiatric medications. We're also encouraging our listeners to call in and share your experience or ask any questions you might have about psychiatric medications. Um, you can email your questions to line one at alaskapublic.org. Call us in Anchorage at 907-550-8433 or reach us toll free at 1-888-353-5752. Okay, we have uh, a caller, Amelia, who's patiently waited for us uh, from Eagle River. You're on line one with Dr. Holt. Go ahead, Amelia. Hello, hey, thank you, doctors. I have a bit of a cold, so I'm a little froggy, but my sister has severe depression, and I know she tried multiple types of SSRIs and SNRIs, and she finally settled on one that she said was that really changed her life, and it's a new drug called Trintilix. And I was wondering, I know it's, I'm pretty sure it's in the SSRI, SNRI family. I'm just wondering how that drug might be different than other SSRIs or SNRIs. All right. Thank you for the call, Amelia. And that leads me to a question with so many different medications. Well, answer her question specifically, and then I want to talk about with all the different medications, um, finding that sweet spot and why some have a positive benefit and some don't. Yep. So Trintelix is a newer drug. Um, and interestingly, like many of the drugs we work with, its mechanism of action isn't fully understood because it still does work on the serotonin uh, system, uh, like some of our older drugs, but it does it in a slightly different way. So its receptor profile within the serotonin system is somewhat different. And that can make a big difference because there are, last time I checked, 12 to 14 different uh, receptor subtypes, 5-HT, they're called the serotonin receptor subtypes. And we have lots of different medications that tickle them in lots of different ways. 
And so, um, and, and those differences have real consequences in the brain. So I'm not at all surprised. It happens to me all the time that we, even within the older serotonin medications, uh, will have to switch agents and even those minor differences and the individual kind of uh, brain that we're using them in will have, a, a, you know, kind of very, very distinct responses. So, um, so broadly speaking, Trintelix is in kind of a newer medication. It's not completely understood, but still broadly related to the way it impacts uh, serotonin activity, just in a slightly different way to those older medications. But, and I'm very happy that, um, Amelia, that your sister had a response to it. That's, that's good. All right. Now, with all these different medications, um, part of the problem is that I, I run into my office all the time is people are like, you got to wait often for a month, um, three to six weeks before you have an effect. And, and you know, how do you know if it's really working? And then if you change them, do you have to wean off? This seems like a really long and arduous process to maybe find the medication if there's 10 different medications that might or may or may not work. I mean, is this just a roll of the dice or is there a a systematic approach to it that you take in your office? Uh, There's a yes and a no answer to that. I think that, you know, there's certainly pharmacogenomics or the use of kind of studying the individual genome of the person in whom you anticipate using a medication has come a long way in, in the past 20 years. And so we can do uh, profile tests where the individuals, uh, how they metabolize uh, medications in the liver and other um, uh, different uh, genotypes that they have and how those interact potentially with medications can give us a, 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 a kind of a head start in some cases. If you look at the research on those, the, the kind of the larger analyses of whether or not those make a difference in, in response, it's, it's modest, but, but, but not nothing. And so, yes, we do have some ability to match uh, genetic testing with individual drug choices. But in reality, what often is um, a really good question to ask people who are uh, anticipating taking a medication is if they have a first degree relative with similar kind of struggles or similar presentation, and if they've responded especially well or especially poorly uh, to a particular agent, that often gives us a sense of where we might want to start. Um, and also, it's not entirely guesswork because certain clusters respond better to certain agents. So, for example, uh, some, if someone had the primary symptom of just low energy and low motivation, but were otherwise, you know, kind of not kind of ruminating um, and they were sleeping okay, uh, we would give that person something that might boost dopamine, uh, like bupropion or the brand name as well, butrin, or something in that category. If they were having a more ruminative, kind of anxious distress, we might go with those SSRI, those serotonin medications. We also have medications that, that touch a couple different receptors at once, and we have ones that touch all of those receptors at once, and sometimes those are called for as well. Um, so, so we, we do have ways to match kind of the presentation and the genomics of the individual to treatment. So it's still inexact, um, but getting better. Okay. Well that, that raises some, I mean, more questions that I get in my office all the time. And that is, yeah, if it worked for mom or uncle, uh, it may have a benefit for, for you if, and it was a, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago and, you know, we started getting, the reps coming in with the swab um, and they would take saliva and they would say, oh, this is a way to accurately predict what medications might work better. That's the uh, 
the genome sort of approach. I mean, is that so that's a legitimate uh, approach is to have that sort of testing done? Um, it's it's a useful in some people, it's a useful part of kind of a broader strategy. Um, I would probably not rely exclusively on one of those tests. I don't okay. think the research probably supports that at this point, but they're not. Again, you, we do have to strike a balance between, you know, um, uh, you know, those things oftentimes are promoted and they may add little value in certain cases. And so you've got to just pick and choose. So I, I wouldn't say that screening everybody who's entering treatment for depression, you know, for, for those is a place to start. But let's say if someone has a non-response to an agent or two before you kind of define them as treatment resistant and decide whether you're deciding to switch class, that might be a good point to step in and say, well, let's take a look at what's going on here. You might be a kind of uh, ultra rapid metabolizer at a certain kind of enzyme and you may, or you may have a kind of a reuptake uh, transporter, uh, you know, uh, uh, difference that, that makes looking at a different class better. So that, that's a, that's probably a time to use them, not at the beginning, but if, if you kind of want to ask specific questions as you kind of progress through treatments. Okay. Um, that's great. Uh, all right, I have an email I want to get to. It says, uh, after working with counselors for about five years on and off, I have since been taking psychiatric medications for ADHD, depression, and anxiety for about 10 years. My health care providers have tried different meds and combos over time. Currently, at age 51, I believe for the better. So one constant med has been amphetamine salts or... Adderall, and I've been concerned about the side effects. I've read that the chemical can result in some tissue breakdown. I feel that I'm experiencing weakness in my teeth, hair, and nails. Even my joints have been more problematic. Is there any truth to this? So, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, psychostimulants or amphetamines used uh, clinically, it's really important to distinguish between that kind of the, the doses and the release between that and, and you know, uh, amphetamine abuse. Certainly there are methamphetamines and other kind of abuse potential, right. and, and certainly high methamphetamine use can lead to a litany of problems, um, you know, not just dental, but neurological ultimately, you know, so, and so, so, but, so I think that, you know, kind of judicious use of uh, ADHD medications and, and psychostimulants over time is generally safe. Um, you know, and it's also important to understand that, you know, these medications are being used in a human body that's very complex. And so uh, while, you know, if, if there's something, if the query like this were to land in my office, I would sort of hold on to that question and say, definitely, maybe, but let's take a look at some other things. You're at an age where, you know, kind of let's look at, is there some kind of inflammatory process going on? Is there something else going on? So autoimmune, inflammatory, infectious, uh, you know, kind of a broader kind of health check. So that, that what's going on in the broader context of, of this person's health would be, a, would be a question I'd ask. Certainly, you know, um, and we'll probably talk a little later, you know, medications do have risks, however, and, you know, especially using medications in combination, we don't have a lot of data about polypharmacy. And so there aren't a lot of studies out there to say, what if someone's on, you know, uh, an ADHD medication long-term in adulthood plus two or three medications for mood and anxiety. Uh, we just don't have studies that are designed to test that. Um, and so some another possibility to consider would be, uh, you know, medication interactions. So uh, I, I, that can be a very frustrating answer, but it also means that that kind of question usually opens a broader investigation to, into what's going on. Um, rather than a focus on, you know, kind of potentially the amphetamine being the culprit, um, 
So I hope that helps. All right. Yeah, that opens up lots and lots of questions um, for me. And let's, I guess let's stick with Adderall because I get that. I mean, that is a very common medication for ADD. And um, what are some of the the risks? Are they different in, in younger folks? Because I have a lot of parents who are trying Adderall and they're 10-year-old or they're 12-year-old. And um, what are some of the risks to Adderall uh, short-term and kind of longer-term, uh, some of these stimulants? Yeah, and so some of them are, in, in children, they are they can be a bit different in that, you know, you have to closely monitor, you know, their blood pressure because they are what are called sympathomimetics. So they do elevate that kind of the, the heart rate and, and can also elevate blood pressure. So those are just its effects on the body. Um, they are appetite suppressant. So sometimes, you know, that, that can be difficult. Uh, so we often run into feeding difficulties where, where young people are put on their ADHD medications and oftentimes kind of struggle maintaining uh, uh, good appetite and, and weight. Um, some kind of in, in early childhood, some evidence that there's a relationship between height as well. And so we kind of take a look at that. Um, can you, you know, tell us, tell us what, that, um, what that is? The um, just kind of you would you would just monitor kind of in early childhood if you're using them you just want to monitor growth all the way around. Oh, okay. You know, just make sure they're they're so if they so if they're hitting their height and weight gotcha. uh, goals and all of a sudden they fall off that cliff, you know, kind of we kind of would look at maybe that's maybe that's the medication we started and and look at a different agent. And luckily, there you know one of the things that to know is that, is that you know um, there are you know a dozen or so different psychosimilar formulations and oftentimes changing or looking within that again another, it can be another frustrating kind of experience. But you know it, it, people can have markedly different experiences with with things that appear to be closely chemically related and, and, and nowhere is that more true than when we talk about psychostimulants, sometimes things that are very closely related, or even the formulations. That's why there are all these mix of kind of in mixed amphetamine salts, the way they're mixed in the time release is oftentimes, you know, it's a quite a bit of an art to it. Um, and so that can make a difference, but also people can have paradoxical responses. Young people can often, uh, you know, kind of have uh, kind of increased irritability, um, uh, with them at times. And, and also, you know, the, the young brain changes a lot. That's, that would be hard to overstate how dramatic and constant change is in, in the developing brain. And so agents that are working for one stage may stop working. And the good news about ADHD in kids though, is that, you know, in many cases, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a time limited treatment oftentimes, you know, kind of people, you know, right. you know, fully half or more of people that are treated for ADHD childhood, you know, generally don't require it for a long period of time and, and don't require it in adulthood. In adulthood, there are kind of some different risks and, and, and those, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, I want to be very clear that appropriately used uh, stimulants, even though they are controlled substances and appropriately so, don't, there's no evidence showing that they support kind of abuse or other kind of addictive behaviors when appropriately used for the right treatments. The problems can be is is it's really sometimes hard to diagnose adult ADHD when there isn't a really good picture of childhood ADHD um, because you know diagnostically ADHD kind of arises in childhood and may persist into adulthood. Rarely does it just arise in adulthood. That's usually something else. Oftentimes, a depression or some other kind of issue, um, and so and so kind of you know kind of figuring out what's causing something that looks like adult concentration problems in the absence of a clear history of, of ADHD can just be a bit of a diagnostic conundrum. 
um, we have a lot of different tools for kind of both, you know, kind of scales that parents and teachers can use and even some computer-based testing um, that, you know, to use in diagnosis of ADHD uh, in, in child, children and adolescents, there are fewer kind of valid scales or, or those types of tests in adulthood. All right. Um, yeah. If, if a parent is concerned that their child might have ADD uh, or ADHD, um, what would they, what would the, I don't know, the, the steps be to getting that sort of nailed down um, briefly? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, so there is a school of thought out there that just, you know, that the actual response to a medication itself is the is the process. You know, if you if you think you've got a good screen in and you think there's a high likelihood that the that the young person has ADHD, you go ahead and try, you know, one of the first line agents. Uh, you know, kind of e- either kind of methylphenidate or a, a mixed amphetamine salt, like an Adderall type preparation, or or they have other things like guanfacine or clonidine. We have different things we try, and if they respond, we, we've got we consider that a positive diagnosis. I tend to be a little more fastidious. I tend to uh, there are different scales that you send kind of out to the parent, to the educator, and then kind of combine that with a uh, in-office interview and and some uh, testing uh, that kind of we then collate those results into kind of what we think is going on diagnostically. And that's kind of when I tend to start um, uh, one of those agents. But yeah. the, the, one of the, you know, one of the things about it is, is that in childhood, especially, you know, it's it, the response is rarely subtle. If, if you've got someone with diagnosed with ADHD and you treat it, um, it, this is not one of those things where it's going to take weeks to months. You'll know f- pretty quickly uh, whether it's working or yeah, not. That's what I was just going to add to that because I hear that a lot and I experience that a lot in my office. Like if if they suspect that their child has ADD at, at 13, 14 and you try it, it's, it's a few days and you know um, whether that is a positive response or not. It is sometimes quite remarkable. Yeah. And the other one is, is that, you know, it's, it's interesting because a, a lot of uh, young people that, that I treat with ADHD medications often want to get the, off them as quickly as possible because unlike, you know, if I were to take an amphetamine, it would probably, you know, give me that classic amphetamine effect of kind of, you know, increased energy, but for them, it slows their thoughts down. And right. for some people, they don't, they don't want their thoughts slowed down. So oftentimes, you know, one of the strategies we use in, in ADHD is oftentimes, you know, kind of, we don't use it on weekends or holidays. We use it specifically for the settings in which ADHD has become a problem. So oftentimes setting specific use of the agent helps us balance, you know, kind of, we want where they get all the benefits so they can attain the educational goals that they need to, because, you know, kids with ADHD are, you know, shockingly intelligent, they're just underperforming their intelligence because they can't sit still or they're kind of, they can't stay maintained focus, but, you know, you know, so, so letting them kind of thrive in those settings, but, but also, you know, um, maybe not overly pathologizing kind of that when it's weekends, especially if it's not causing a huge amount of damage and also limits their exposure to the medication. And that's good too. Yeah. They, there's drug vacations, right? You don't take them on the weekends. Mm -hmm. You you don't have to take those sorts of medications every day. Like you would, um, something for bipolar or depression or anxiety. That's right. And I want to be clear. I think you've, you've, you've said something very important here. That's the exception rather than the rule. It's, right. it's very rare that, you know, when we're, we're, we're prescribing into that into spaces like uh, depression or schizophrenia or bipolar, um, drug vacations can lead to relapses in other settings. All right. Well, I have a, uh, 
a question here. It says, I don't know if this was covered. For bipolar, what drugs sort of work best against, and this is something I run into in my office a lot. People do not want to take some of these drugs, Dr. Holt, because of the massive weight gain. Um, but what drug sort of works best against the side effects of weight gain? Also, as things change, are changes in dosage common? Yes and yes. So oftentimes the amount of, of medication it takes to resolve an acute episode of mania or a severe bipolar depression are quite high and, and, and polypharmacy, multiple agents. Once someone is stable, picking the right mood stabilizer for them and trying to get as close as you can to monotherapy or one medication is, you know, kind of my ideal. And so I wish I had better news about weight gain. There are, there are very few that, 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 that kind of strike that perfect balance of, you know, being an optimal mood stabilizer on their own and weight neutral, you know, the anticonvulsants we use, um, perhaps with the exception of Lamotrigine um, uh, for bipolar depression, you know, do cause weight gain and a raft of other side effects. Uh, Lamotrigine itself has to be slowly titrated. Lithium is an excellent medication for both depression and and manic uh, side of it and, and, and very good at preventing uh, recurrence when used appropriately, but also can have weight gain and other side effects. Um, and so this goes to the broader and, and then the atypicals, uh, like the ones that we use for both schizophrenia and bipolar, um, you know, those can also have metabolic side effects and weight gain is among them. Although that's a continuum, some of them have less than other, but they all carry that black box warning of metabolic side effects. And so, so yeah, and so sometimes we add, you know, in certain cases, sometimes adding a medication. Um, we, we sometimes use medications that are used to control diabetes, uh, blood sugar, uh, like metformin. We sometimes add those to medications to blunt metabolic side effects. But that that then again involves adding a medication to a medication, which itself is suboptimal. Lifestyle is important as well, making sure that we're we're giving person adequate support so they can kind of you know kind of tailor their lifestyle to mitigating the unavoidable metabolic consequences of some of these medications, but it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's, it's a difficult ask for someone to kind of, you know, we, you know, medications, all, everything I prescribe has side effects and that's an important conversation. I had a, a lady tell me to quote, I would rather be crazy than fat. And like, mm -hmm. she was like, had gained a, a lot of weight really quickly and it was um causing her a great deal of distress um so I, I do i know that that is one that comes up quite often we are uh past our break so if you're just tuning in my guest is psychiatrist dr richard holt we are discussing the types uses benefits and risks of psychiatric medications if you have a question or an experience you'd like to uh, share you can call us in anchorage at 907 5508433 toll free our number is 1883535752 and our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org after this short break we'll return with uh, more emails and more of our conversation with Dr. Holt I'm Prentice Pemberton and this is line 1 your health connection on Alaska Public Media you're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to start accelerating your child's future through education? The Alaska Native Science and Engineering Program is expanding its reach with new opportunities in Juneau and Southeast Alaska. With ANSEP's Acceleration Academy, high school students can earn college credit, save thousands of dollars in college costs, and experience fun, hands-on learning. ANSEP 
It's a better way to learn. Learn more and enroll at ansep.net slash acceleration. This message sponsored by ANSEP. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. If you're just joining us, my guest is psychiatrist Dr. Richard Holt. We are talking about psychiatric medications. Our phone numbers in Anchorage, 907-550-8433. Toll free, 1-888-353-5752. And our email is line1 at alaskapublic.org. If you have a question for Dr. Holt or a comment for us, uh, please call in in the next five minutes or so because we will run out of time. Um, we have a, a caller, uh, Roger in Anchorage. You're on line one with Dr. Holt. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, this isn't very narrowly on, on the topic, but it's very closely related. And that is, I wonder if your guest or you would have any uh, comments or suggestions when uh, a, a close uh, friend or, or uh, loved one uh, is seriously depressed and they uh, are resistant or declining to, uh, you know, get any uh, psychiatric medication. Uh, is there another approach, or is there a way to sort of uh, get them uh, started on a course of medication, even if they're resistant uh, uh, to uh, participating? Yeah, so someone who does not want to go in and take meds, but they are not functioning very well, Dr. Holt. Yeah, I mean, Roger brings up something that is, you know, tragically common is, is that, you know, and it's difficult to know how to talk to someone you care about and in whom you can obviously see a need for treatment about that. And, and this is where there are resources for exactly folks like Rogers. This is where you'd go to the National Alliance for Mental Illness, NAMI, um, they have a website, website, and that will also have a link to other kind of, um, there's, there definitely is an, an Anchorage or Alaska chapter of, of NAMI. So going, and so that is, that is, that is a kind of um, uh, an organization that is founded by and, you know, kind of affiliated through families and consumers of mental health services. So it's not an organization of doctors or therapists, it's an organization of people who have this frontline experience, uh, like Roger's describing. Uh, of having a loved one with illness and, and really not knowing how to speak into that space until like and, and so what, what happens in those spaces is, you know, there's no one size fits all for way of to way of, to way of talking to the space, but sometimes you'll you'll encounter other families in similar situations and and oftentimes that's a good place to find that language. But yeah, that's with, without some sort of guidance, it can be incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult for me at my office oftentimes to find the language right. uh, when it's when it's very clear that someone has a need for treatment. You know, and and we have techniques, and, and you do too. That you know, motivational enhancement, and also kind of you know, creating that space that that person can when they're when they're ready to change. But when it gets severe enough, I mean, there also are options if someone's you know you know kind of someone's condition is is imminently threatening. Is that that is where kind of you know kind of there are uh, you know emergency statutes uh, in Alaska for for people to be evaluated. You know, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be hospitalized, but they they could go to the emergency department and be seen by a psychiatrist or or, or kind of you know if if there was some risk of immediate harm, um, which can happen. Yeah, there's a yeah there's two sort of scenarios. One is imminent risk of harm, in which there are some legal avenues to pursue, and then. 
There's the just not functioning very well, depressed, everybody knows, um, but that person is very, very resistant to, to going in. And I always encourage people to start with a, a therapist. If you can get somebody into a therapist who's resistant to medication, um, sometimes that is an avenue um, to getting somebody willing to get to that point. Because, you know, I often say to people, okay, you don't want to take meds, let's do these things first, right? Let's approach it this way. And uh, people get to a point sometimes where they're like, wow, none of this stuff is working. And having conversations with somebody who's sort of trained in how to enhance motivation, as you, you talked about, um, can be helpful. So thank you for the call. Uh, we'll keep going with the phone calls. We'll take uh, Chris and Wasilla. Go ahead. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. So my father uh, for years was on Alprazolam or Xanax for anxiety and depression. Um, and he was on a myriad of other medications as well. And he had decided to quit taking uh, Xanax specifically. And uh, he actually died from withdrawal from that. If somebody's been taking Xanax for years or any other benzoid that causes withdrawal symptoms like that, how would some, how would how would that person quit taking it to uh, you know avoid death or serious injury from from uh, the withdrawal symptoms? Thank you for the call, Chris. That's a really important question, Xanax. Benzos, uh, what are the risks and, and uh, what are they used for and what are the risks and how should you use them effectively and get off of them? Yeah, Chris brings up a tragically and completely avoidable scenario here. And, and again, this a lot of this goes to how we as doctors, you know, if we're going to be prescribing something like alprazolam, which belongs to a broader class of medications called benzodiazepines that are very powerful and effective treatments for anxiety, but also have some really, really severe risks. And so, you know, um, and, and one of those is exactly the one that, that Chris um, talked about is that in long-term use, um, because they work on a neurotransmitter system, GABA, that is so broadly distributed throughout the brain that withdrawing them quickly after long-term use is, you know, predisposes someone to uncontrollable seizure activity, uh, delirium, and death. And so if someone were on that along for a long period of time, um, taking them off of a medication like that can often take months to years and can often be very, it has to be undertaken very slowly. And so, you know, if the person is motivated to do that and come off those medications, and I want to be clear that 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 is not the same thing as addiction, that is physiologic dependence. So that is a person who's become physiologically dependent to the medication. And, and it doesn't sound like Chris's father was an addict. He was prescribed those medications. He took them as directed and tried right. to get himself off of them. And so, you know, so really important that 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 physiologic status not be not be conflated with with kind of, you know, anything that 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 the patient's doing wrong there. So really in, the, in that space, it's sometimes a difficult conversation is they're like, I'm sick of being on those medications. I want to come off of them. And then you go, well, that's going to take time. And, and sometimes, you know, especially people who are older and have other medical conditions that may even start in hospital. Um, and so, and, 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 and again, can take a frustratingly long time, months, two years. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm sorry for Chris's loss and, but he brings up just a really important, uh, niche in, you know, kind of what we need to do in psychiatry with these medications. Yeah. The benzos, um, I, I'm really glad, uh, Chris 
called in for that. Is there are there other medications that people really should not just quit? Because I have sometimes teenagers will just quit medications because you know without telling anybody because they don't want to take them anymore and they think their parents are making them take them. But um, besides the benzos that people should not, are there any should nots? Like I, I think all medications you should talk to your doctor before you change them. Obviously, but. Right. It's, it's one of actually the short list of blanket statements I can make is that, yeah, I would say that is if, if, you're, on a, if you're on a prescribed medication um, before making changes either way, you know, taking extra, stopping, whatever, before making changes to it, make sure there's a discussion first because, you know, um, although we try to educate our, our, our patients as best we can on, on, on kind of their medications, um, it's, you know, it's impossible for them to know all the nuances and details, and that's not their responsibility. You know, kind of their responsibility is, is to call us and, 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 and allow us to kind of help them in that, in that goal. So yeah, benzodiazepine is certainly the very top of that list, but pretty much, you know, kind of, um, you know, some medications, even though they are not like a medically lethal kind of, kind of withdrawal, syndrome, you know, like Chris described in his father, can be really, really uncomfortable. The classic one is if someone's been on a serotonin medication, SSRI, we talked about Prozac and other ones, if, if someone's been on those medications for a long period of time and then stops them suddenly, um, it wouldn't cause their body harm, but they would just kind of, they, they would have this really uncomfortable flu-like, um, you know, discontinuation phenomenon that again is completely avoidable if you just, you know, wean them off the medication slowly. Um, so, um, but it's really kind of, most medications have have something similar. Um, and again, we do stop medications cold turkey sometimes if there are side effects. Um, but again, the, that's a that's a much more nuanced conversation um, that needs to take place kind of in a clinical setting. All right. Um, Chris has uh, a, oh, a different different Chris. Um, quick question on meds. Go ahead. You're on line one. Hi, good morning. Um, my question is, though, I was on clonazepam and Ativan for about six months. And as, as we started to wean myself off of it, uh, I got anxious that I needed the drug uh, to function. And so it kind of made my anxiety worse getting off of it. Is that common? And how do you deal with that? Yes, that is very common. And it's a really important conversation that I have with my clients when we start these medications is that if we're going to come off them, we need to be aware of the fact that one of the risks of benzodiazepines is that sometimes the, the anxiety of reducing the dose or coming off the medications can be equal to or greater than the anxiety we are trying to kind of treat in the first place. So this speaks to the point that, you know, ideally, um, you know, the, the time frame of benzodiazepine use uh, is days to weeks rather than months, because it doesn't take long for that, that physiologic change to take place. That again, both of our Chris's have highlighted is not addiction. This is being in, entirely prescribed by the doctor and in no way abused but has this very real risk of creating a rebound anxiety that can be as bad or worse than the anxiety you're trying to treat on the front end. And, and so, so that is a real risk. And, and kind of go, knowing that on the front end and kind of, you know, that doesn't mean that I always get away with using these in the short term. Sometimes there are cases where we do go out to months, but we, we, I certainly don't ever do so without a plan of kind of what, what we're going to do. And, and, you know, uh, yeah, that's a difficult one and, and a pretty common. And, and for some people, that is a deal breaker. You know, that's they like, well, I don't want to experience that. Right. Um, and the other thing that can help is also kind of, you know, there are different ones within the class and sometimes converting to one that has a longer half-life, like, you know, the Alprazolam or Xanax that the first Chris described is one of the, it has very short half-life. So withdrawal can come on very quickly. Um, uh, diazepam has a longer half-life, but also has some 
troubles in older folks can be hard to come off. Clonazepam is a longer acting one, so it tends to be a little easier to withdraw over time. But but again, it's one of those things where some people, if they've been on the medication for six months, they may have to de- dedicate it another three to six months uh, coming off. All right. I got an email. It says, I took Abilify in addition to my SSRI for depression, ended up with luckily short-term tardive dyskinesia. Uh, what caused this side effect? What is tardive dyskinesia and um, what causes that? So tardive dyskinesia is among a, kind of the host of motor abnormalities that can be caused um, by several of diff- several different psychiatric medications, but primarily by that class of antipsychotic medications. That so the, the aripiprazole, the Abilify, is likely the culprit there. And um, even though it's much less likely to produce that than than uh, than the older medications, what that involves there, there are two things that can happen, you know, well, three, we'll talk about all three. The first is, ac- first is acute dystonia, this acute stiffness, uh, where your muscles stiffen up and, 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 you know, kind of that needs to be treated straight away, but is reversible. The second one is akathisia, which is this intense sense of restlessness that can be, that can, and it can also happen with aripiprazole. The third is that what our client described as tardive dyskinesia, which is basically looks a lot like Parkinson's disease. Right. It's a tremor and kind of reduced movement. That can be permanent. So, you know, if you get it quickly, you know, kind of, but that but tardive dyskinesia of those three are the one that even when you withdraw the medication can uh, persist. And they are all the result of its action at a kind of place kind of deep in the brain called the basal ganglia, which regulates um, uh, kind of uh, moment to moment motor activity and has a lot of uh, dopamine neurons that, that are impacted uh, by the medications we use that impact that for schizophrenia, but also as in, in the client's case that who, who just wrote in, they are used quite commonly as augmenting agents and are fully approved to do so. They, their Abilify is useful oftentimes, but does have that risk of a side effect. Well, Dr. Holt, I have uh, lots of emails about uh, psilocybin and uh, ketamine and anxiety and depression, and we are out of time. So we will not be able to get to those today, but um, thanks to all my callers. And Dr. Holt, I appreciate you getting up early and joining us. Um, It was a very helpful discussion. My pleasure as well. Thanks, Prentice. All right. Uh, Thanks again to my callers uh, for calling in and for bringing up some really great points and and good questions. Uh, Thanks to my audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and to Line One producer, Adeline Baxter. For all of us at Line One, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Until next time. I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.